Will you be the one to defeat the evil empire, or will you be the one that crushes the pathetic rebels? Well, let's find out with Rebellion this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? And welcome to episode 75 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back as always to talk to you about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So it's uh, it's early July, so happy Canada Day to all my uh, Canadian blockers out there, and happy upcoming Independence Day to all you Americans, our, uh, our national holidays, if you will, the, the holidays of the founding of our respective countries are... Uh, Decidedly close together, <laughs> you know, July 1st versus July 4th. Uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of fun. Uh, I had uh, some time off, so I was able to, uh, you know, do a little bit of biking. And uh, yeah, the weather wasn't super great, but, uh, you know, I had a couple of days off between because uh, July 1st was a Wednesday, which was kind of weird. So we had a day off right smack in the middle of the week. So I took the Monday and the uh, and the Tuesday off and, uh, you know, did some things, played some games, went outside when it wasn't pouring rain and uh, and overall enjoyed myself. And I actually do want to talk about one game. Uh, you know, I usually say the stuff for the news, but I just want to talk about it real quick because it's a little game that's uh, fun and has a little bit of uh, a little bit to do with uh, with people like us. If uh, if if you want to put it that way, uh, the game is called TIS 100 and it's basically a. Sort of a puzzle game, which uh, basically all you do in this game is uh, the premise of the game is that you find your aunt finds uh, her her husband dies. So your uncle dies and uh, she's going through the garage, you know, looking through all this stuff and cataloging it and, you know, getting rid of it and whatever. And he has a whole bunch of computer equipment and one computer is on his desk and uh, it's a really old machine. It's called the TIS-100, the Tessellated Intelligence System. And it's basically, and basically the way you do anything with this machine is uh, you have to give it what are effectively uh, assembly language instructions. So there's a bunch of, uh, of puzzles that you have to go through and, you know, there's different inputs and you have to do various things to them using these, uh, these assembly language commands. And, uh, you know, there's all these little different cores so you can do like parallel processing and all this stuff. So as a programmer, I almost shouldn't like this game because it's basically my job, but, uh, it's, it's strangely entertaining. So if you guys want to check it out, it's on steam. It's not very expensive. I think I might've gotten it on sale or actually no Paul, Paul, Polly coyote who, uh, writes into the, uh, writes into the show every once in a while he he get he got it for me so thanks a lot i finally got around to installing it and uh yeah it's damned good so uh tis 100 check it out if you have any interest in uh in programming kind of within a framework or if you haven't done any programming this would be an interesting way to maybe get into it a little bit because uh hey it's assembly language so it's straightforward but you have a very limited uh set of commands with which to uh, to do things so sometimes you have to write a lot of code to do a very simple thing so very very interesting the other thing I want to talk about is a TV show, because I don't usually talk about TV on this on this podcast, but this is a relevant TV show. It's an AMC series that I just started watching. I believe season one is finished, but it is called Halt and Catch Fire. Uh, and this is a show I had never heard of before until I uh, did a guest spot on the Trex and Sci-Fi podcast 
uh, I was basically on a Skype call with them where we were talking about summer movies. And uh, my buddy Rico over there told me about this show. So Halt and Catch Fire uh, basically takes place in, I believe it starts in 1983. And uh, it takes place at this company that uh, is trying to build a, a computer, a, a home personal computer to, uh, to compete with the IBM PC. So it was kind of all this, you know, there's like the the Waz type, you know, engineer guy. There's the super charismatic, somewhat crazy sales guy. That's kind of, they're not Apple. I mean, they actually talk about Apple. So they're a separate thing, but they're really kind of like, you know, Waz and Steve Jobs kind of a, a situation. But, uh, you know, they're working within the confines of this company and they hired this other girl who's like this, you know, she's a young university student and she's like this crazy software hacker and she has to write a BIOS. And I mean, it's all like, it's right up our alley. If you guys haven't heard of it, because it totally passed me by, definitely check it out. So it's a Halt and Catch Fire on AMC. I believe the first season is actually on Netflix. If you guys want to check it out, but enough of all that, let's get to uh, let's get to our main topic. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block podcast. Time for okay. So let's get to it. Uh, this time around. We're discussing a pretty unique and a little-known game from one of the big guys. It is called Star Wars Rebellion. Now, Rebellion is a single game which uh, was published by LucasArts and was developed by a very short-lived uh, developer named Cool Hand Interactive. Now, all this stuff went down in the year 1998. So let's talk genre. Rebellion is a fairly unique game in that it is sort of a cross between a 4X game and a real-time strategy game. So we've definitely discussed 4X games in the past. In fact, we discussed Master of Orion, the game that coined the term 4X back in episode 35, so you may want to go check that one out. That's a good one. Since this is the UMB cast, though, I know we already talked about this, but let's talk about it again, because I got time to kill. Ha! So 4X is a type of strategy game in which uh, the player is placed in control of uh, a certain organization, usually politically based, such as an empire or federation or a confederation or, you know, republic or whatever you want to call it. Uh, With your empire's resources and military forces, you partake in what has become known as the 4Xs. Explore, expand, exploit, and my favorite, exterminate. So, uh... Going through them in a bit more detail, that was a bad Doctor Who thing, Dalek impression. Yeah, that wasn't funny. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, so most 4X games play out by uh, by exploring unknown areas, uh, you know, to discover new territories, new resources, and uh, also the borders of, uh, of other players' claims or empires. Now, through this, you can expand your own territory, uh, exploiting resources and, of course, exterminating your enemies. Forex games are well known for having deep and complex gameplay, requiring players to manage many aspects of their empire's operation. Now, not only do you have to develop military forces for uh, for attack and defense, you also need to ensure your populations are well served with uh, a high quality of life, a developed economy, and uh, you know you also have to make sure they remain loyal to your cause. Now, there are generally multiple win conditions in 4X games, allowing players to achieve their goals either through military means, via diplomacy, cultural, or economic uh, kind of uh, means. So gameplay can be turn-based or real-time. So you may ask, you know, from the real-time case, isn't this just considered a a real-time strategy game like Dune or Warcraft? Well, pure RTS games, as, as you probably well know, focus on 
kind of the small unit military aspects of relatively small scale engagements. 4X games tend to focus on the bigger picture, more strategic versus tactical. Uh, military engagements are part of it, but uh, they're generally managed via stats and dice rolls versus direct player interaction. Now, Rebellion does deviate from the norm to some degree because it does actually have a small real-time strategy combat element to it, but we'll get into that a bit more as we go on. So as you may imagine, Rebellion takes place within the Star Wars universe. This is a Star Wars game, so that's kind of a dead giveaway. By the name, you may also be able to surmise that we're placed in the time period of the original Star Wars trilogy. So in Star Wars Rebellion, we got to get to the time where there is a rebellion. Well, if you thought these things, you'd be right. Uh, this game is set immediately after the Battle of Yavin. Now, for those of you who aren't quite as up on Star Wars lore as I may be, considering I also kind of do a Star Wars podcast, <laughs> uh, the Battle of Yavin is the engagement that ends Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Hope, A New Hope. <laughs> Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, uh, the original movie that came out in 1977. Now, this is the battle where Luke Skywalker destroys the first Death Star with uh, the help of Han Solo and the Use the Force, Luke, help of Obi Wan Kenobi. So while the destruction of the Death Star was a massive victory for the Rebel Alliance, it was actually sort of bittersweet. Now, the movies skip the immediate aftermath, and I didn't actually realize this, and this is kind of like a hand-in-your-geek-card moment. There are th there's three years between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. I didn't know that. So, you know, we, we finished the movie, Luke destroyed the Death Star, everyone's partying, you know, R2 gets fixed... And then we jump three years later to Empire Strikes Back, where Luke is you know, more mature, he's confident, he's a commander, the Rebels have established a new base on the ice planet of Hoth, and you know, at least for a few minutes in the movie all as well. Well, this game starts a matter of days after the Death Star has been destroyed. Now, while the Rebels are celebrating, they're also organizing the mass evacuation of their previously hidden base. Sadly, the destruction of the Death Star did not result in the destruction of the Empire, otherwise we wouldn't have had two more movies. Uh, the massive Imperial military, the massive Imperial fleet, the massive Imperial army are all still out there, and now they all know where the bulk of the Rebels' personnel, material, and leadership are all located on the fourth moon of the planet Yavin. This is an immensely precarious state for the Rebels to be in. They may have won a victory, but they are horribly vulnerable. In fact, the traditional Star Wars opening crawl uh, in the intro of the game gives us a good synopsis of, uh, of the state of things right now, and it reads, It is a dark time for the Rebellion. Although the Death Star has been destroyed, Imperial forces have located the hidden rebel base on Yavin and are poised to strike back. On the planet Coruscant, the heart of the Empire, Darth Vader and the Emperor make plans to crush the Rebel Alliance once and for all. The full weight of the Empire is about to come to bear against the Rebels. In their secret headquarters, Alliance leaders, resolute after their recent victory, gather the warships of the Rebel fleet. Although they have won a significant battle, the war between the Alliance and the Empire has only just begun. So this is the state of things at, uh, at the beginning of the game. From here, you choose your side, either Rebel or Imperial. So, who are you? Well, unlike many Star Wars games, you're not playing Luke Skywalker, 
You're not playing a daring smuggler. You're not a hotshot X-Wing pilot. You're not a Jedi or a Sith coming into their force powers. In fact, on the surface, your role in this game sounds immensely boring. You are effectively an administrator, managing resources, positioning fleets, and sending notable heroes of your faction on various missions to various planets. This isn't to say that you're unimportant. Generals, admirals, Mon Mothma, Darth Vader, and even the Emperor himself all do your bidding without question. You are like the boss of the bosses. So for the purposes of describing gameplay, I'll, well, run things from the perspective of the Rebels to a certain extent, but I'll be sure to point out where things differ for the Empire. Uh, you know, now that we know some of the background of the universe and where you fit into it, let's start talking about the rest. You are Okay, gameplay. So after the game's intro, we find ourselves at the controls of a Lambda-class Imperial shuttle. If you've ever seen the movies, it's those shuttles that have the foldy wings. You all know what they look like. From here, we set up all the parameters of our game. We choose the size of our galaxy, either standard, large, or huge, which corresponds to 100, 150, or 200 systems separated across 10, 15, or 20 sectors of space. Generally, larger galaxies provide a longer and more challenging game as there's more territory to fight over, more territory to hide in, more territory to explore. Next, a difficulty of easy, medium, or hard dictates how challenging and aggressive your opponents are. You can also modify the game's victory conditions here. As we'll soon understand, to win a game of rebellion, you have to capture and hold the headquarters of your opponent, plus capture their two most valuable heroes. By selecting headquarters-only victory, the game becomes a sudden death match, as only the capture of your enemy's base will result in a victory. Finally, you choose to begin the game as either the Rebels or the Imperials. Depending on which side you choose, your shuttle enters hyperspace and takes you either to a superstar destroyer with the Imperial fleet, should you choose the Empire, or what appears to be a cloud city on a desert planet, but whatever, <laughs> we'll go with it, uh, if you choose the Rebels. So, like I said... We'll roll through things as the rebels, but uh, you know what? So once you settle in after your trip, you are introduced to the screen you'll be seeing for about 90% of your gameplay, the galaxy overview. Uh, you're also introduced to your advisor who, as the rebels, just happens to be C-3PO with uh, R2-D2 along to help manage data. Uh, 3PO now provides you with a pretty good and detailed overview of the galaxy and of your objectives. Take it away, 3PO. I am C-3PO Human-Cyborg Relations, and this is my counterpart, R2-D2. We have prepared a report on the current state of the galaxy. As you can see on the galactic information display, the galaxy is in a state of turmoil. Our recent destruction of the Death Star has drawn many core systems to the Alliance cause. However, as you can see, many systems still remain loyal to the Empire. Several of the core systems are controlled by the Empire because the planets are garrisoned by Imperial troops. Those systems would join us, but the presence of Imperial troops makes that difficult. There are many systems along the rim of the galaxy which are little known to us or to the Empire. These systems would make excellent bases for our forces. We currently have two bases in the Galactic Rim. One of these bases is on the fourth moon of the planet Yavin, which you can see indicated here. This is the base from which our fighters launched to destroy the Death Star. I should point out to you that the Empire now knows that we have a base on Yavin. R2 has calculated the odds that the Empire will attack Yavin shortly at almost one to one. Perhaps we should evacuate that base. 
Our other base is here. This is the location of the Alliance headquarters. Alliance intelligence believes that the Empire does not know the location of our headquarters at this time. Fortunately, our headquarters can be transferred to another system if you feel that it is threatened. You should remember that the loss of our headquarters would be a terrible blow to the Alliance. I'm sure you recall the location of the Imperial capital here on Coruscant. This is the most significant system in the Empire. This is the location of Emperor Palpatine's palace. If we could take Coruscant, that would take us a long way toward defeating the Empire. Our fleet has been dispersed after the Battle of Yavin and is now outnumbered by the Imperial fleet. I suggest we begin a shipbuilding program to strengthen our fleet. There are also troops, fighters, and system defenses located with each of our bases, as well as some facilities located on the core systems which are loyal to us. The President of the Alliance, Mon Mothma, is located here with the Alliance headquarters. Intelligence indicates that the Empire has targeted her. The capture of the President would be a significant loss to the Alliance. Our sources also indicate that Imperial agents are searching for Luke Skywalker. We know that Master Luke's abilities with the Force will make him a prime target for the Empire. Losing Master Luke would mean that our best chance for victory would be lost. I'm sure I don't need to remind you about Emperor Palpatine and his evil henchman Darth Vader. They are the leadership of the Empire. If they could be captured, it would be a severe blow to the Empire. That ends my briefing. I hope you enjoyed it. We are ready for your orders. And might I add, good luck. And may the force be with you. Well, thank you, 3PO. So, as we can hear, as the Rebels, we have a few goals. First, we need to protect our base. Uh, the Rebels have one big advantage over the Empire. Their base can move. So if the Imperials make a play for it, you can up and move it somewhere else. Now, you also need to capture the Imperial capital of Coruscant. Now, this obviously is not easy. While the Imperials can't move their headquarters like the Rebels can, you can be assured that it will be heavily defended in both space and on the ground by a large array of Imperial forces. A frontal assault is likely not to be your best solution here, at least not right off the bat. Now, aside from capturing the capital, you also need to capture the two key players, leaders, if you will, of the Empire, and that is the Emperor himself and Darth Vader. Of course, you aren't doing this unopposed. The Empire will be trying to find your base and capture your leaders who are Mon Mothma and Luke Skywalker. So, how do you accomplish this goal? Well, this is where we get into the details. It's also the point where most of the trappings of the Star Wars canon and the existing story fall away. You're effectively left to your own devices from here on out to develop the story as you see fit. So you start off the game in control of a few worlds. Controlling a world basically means that the world's popular support leans more towards your side than the other side. Uh, neutral worlds have a 50-50 popular support. This is displayed as a bar under the planet on the galaxy overview. Red is for rebels and green is for imperials. So if half of it's red, half of it's green, the world's kind of indifferent to both of you. So as the rebels, you have the planet Yavin and uh, the other planet on the rim of the galaxy where your hidden base exists. Uh, this is randomly selected at the beginning of every game. And uh, you also have a few planets in the core. Now, the core are the group of sectors in the center of the galaxy map. Core worlds tend to be richer, have larger populations, and already have some facilities and defenses in place. They're also more likely to be attacked by your enemy. Rim worlds ring the outside of the map on the galactic rim. Hey, that's surprising. Now, they're unexplored at the start of the game, except for the one where your base is. Uh, they take a long time to get to, and uh, they're largely undeveloped. 
it's with these planets that uh, you manage and expand your side's resources, be they either in the core or on the rim. You own planets, you exploit them. Now, each planet has a set amount of energy available with which to build facilities. So if you have eight energy boxes, you have space for eight facilities. Now, facilities include resource buildings like mines, which produce raw materials, and refineries, which uh, refine the raw materials into usable doodads, which can be used for other production. You don't control what they make, they just make materials that you can use. There's also a variety of production facilities like construction yards, which uh, give you the ability to produce other facilities. Uh, you can build, there's also troop training facilities, which produce ground troops and special forces, and orbital shipyards, which produce starships and starfighters for your fleets. Finally, you can build planetary defense cannons and energy shield to defend your planets from enemy assaults. Now, using these facilities, you can build out your planets, placing defenses on key worlds and, you know, creating large or small fleets filled with capital ships, troop transports, filled with naval or army regiments, and, uh, you know, starfighters for defense or attack or all that. These fleets can be used for exploration and defense of your worlds. Of course, they can also be used offensively as well. If a fleet moves into orbit of a hostile or neutral world, that world is automatically under blockade. Now, this makes moving units on and off those worlds more difficult. Units trying to run the blockade run the risk of being damaged, captured, or even destroyed. Now, fleets can also bombard enemy worlds, destroying defenses and facilities. Uh, this makes the world, in theory, easier to invade with uh, ground troops. Now, military conquest is one way to gain control of worlds and expand your side's industrial base. But beware, a newly invaded world will need to be garrisoned by a large number of troops initially since the planet's popular support will not be high. You just invaded them against their will, so they don't like you. Uh, if the garrison is under strength, the world will remain in uprising and they won't contribute to any production, so really you're just wasting your time. Now, this is all well and good. You know, production, fleets, and military units are part and parcel of most 4X games. Rebellion is a bit different from other 4X games, though. While you do build out army regiments, fleets, facilities, all those things, the way you really get things done in this game, and the only way you can really win, is by sending characters on missions. Now, characters are exactly what you think they are. They're characters from the Star Wars universe. Um, Rebellion contains two types of characters, major and minor. In the Alliance, the major characters are Mon Mothma, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, and Princess Leia known in the game as Leia Organa, which is her, you know, her name. That's Jimmy Smith's last name, Bail Organa, so her dad. Uh, on the Empire side, you only have two major characters, Vader and the Emperor. Now, minor characters consist of a wide range of Imperial and Rebel officers and sympathizers and anything you could think of. Uh, there's around 25 of them per side, including movie characters that we know, like Chewbacca, Wedge Antilles, Jan Dondana, Admiral Piet, General Veers, all those guys. What is immensely interesting, though, especially to a long-time Star Wars Expanded Universe book reader like myself, is that there are also EU characters in here. This is actually really cool. Uh, on the Rebel side, we see people like Talon Card, Borsk Failia, Jutter Page, and uh, Garmbel Iblis. They're all from the, uh, the Thrawn trilogy that came out in the early 90s. If you want to know more about that, check out the first few episodes of the Star Wars stacks where we review that entire trilogy. Plug, plug, plug. Uh, on the Empire side, though, we find people like General Covell, Admiral Dalla, Bevel Lemelisk, he's actually the designer of the Death Star, 
uh, Ship Thief Niles Ferrier, or Ferrier, I don't know how to say it, and uh, hell, even Grand Admiral Thrawn's in there. Uh, this isn't the first time EU characters have come into Star Wars games. I mean, Thrawn figured very heavily into TIE Fighter, but, uh, you know, the amount of them really did kind of tickle my, my EU bones, if you will. So realistically, uh, the only differences between major and minor characters are these. You always have access to all your major characters at the start of the game. When it comes to minor characters, you're given a random selection of them when you start. Uh, you can recruit the remainder of your minor characters by sending your major characters on recruitment missions to friendly planets. Now, each character has a set of stats, which uh, define what type of missions they are good at. For example, Princess Leia has strong diplomatic and leadership skills. Han Solo has strong espionage, combat, and leadership skills. He's kind of a good all-around guy. Uh, there's quite a few types of missions your characters can undertake. At the beginning of the game, the two you'll become most familiar with are uh, recruitment and diplomacy. So as I just mentioned, recruitment missions can be taken by your main characters to build out your stable of, uh, of minor characters. Of course, having more characters allows you to send more people out on missions at the same time. Now, you'll need to balance the need to recruit as many characters as quickly as possible versus the need to send your main characters on other types of missions as well. I mean, most of your mains are pretty powerful. So, you know, sending Mon Mothma out on a recruiting mission means she won't be doing any diplomacy, which she is really good at. So, diplomacy is the second most important mission type, at least at the start of the game. And, you know, diplomacy is exactly what you think it is. You send one of your characters to a neutral planet and attempt to sway their popular support toward your side. Now, this may or may not result in the planet joining you, and if it doesn't, you have the option of continuing the mission until it does, or you decide you spent enough time there. Uh, diplomacy missions can also be sent out to friendly planets that are not in uprising. Uh, this will increase their popular support for your side. So if you see them kind of, you know, falling off a little, maybe not liking you as much as they used to, send someone off, you know, tap them on the shoulder, and, you know, give them a hug, and, uh, and they'll start to like you again. Other mission types include espionage, which uh, will reveal a snapshot of details of enemy or neutral planets, uh, incite uprising missions uh, can result in uprisings and decreases in popular support on enemy systems. Uh, uprisings are great on enemy worlds because they may result in destruction of, uh, of defenses without you doing anything. Uh, research missions aid in discovering new types of facilities, units, ships, all those kinds of things. Because there is there's sort of a tech tree of things you discover as you go along. Abduction missions can result in the capture of enemy characters. Uh, these missions are actually critical to winning the game because you know you got to capture people to uh, you got to capture the mains to to win. Uh, rescue missions are the opposite, allowing you to save your captured heroes. So you know what, Luke Skywalker might be captured, but if you rescue him, the Empire still can't win. Now, the more missions you send your characters on the more their corresponding stats will increase, making them more effective as the game progresses. So, you know, if say you have, I don't know, Bren Derlin, you know, the guy played by John Ratzenberger <laughs> in The Empire Strikes Back, uh, say he's not that good at diplomacy, and maybe you need someone to be better at diplomacy, you could start sending him on diplomacy missions. He won't do well at the beginning, but eventually he'll gain some points and he'll get okay at it. Or, you know, you can just keep developing people in their strengths. These stats include things like leadership, espionage, combat, and uh, various forms of research. Now, there are even some missions which can only be performed by one side or another. Now, only the Empire can send characters on assassination missions, which uh, result in the injury or death 
of uh, targeted opposing characters because, you know, the Alliance is nice and they don't assassinate people. On the Alliance side, if the Empire has been able to gather up the resources to build a new Death Star, which is certainly an option, the Rebels can launch a Death Star sabotage mission to try and destroy it. Now, the Death Star itself is an interesting unit in the game. I mean, this you, you build it at a shipyard just like you'd build, you know, a a Carrot-class light cruiser or a Dreadnought or a Nebulon-B escort frigate or a Corellian Corvette or, uh, you know, a Star Destroyer. But uh, it's obviously much more expensive and takes much longer to build. And it's also sort of a double-edged sword for the Empire. It's hugely expensive. It takes a long time to build it. But once it's built, there are quite a few advantages that it offers. Firstly, it has a huge carrying capacity for troops and fighters. It's a great way to reinforce garrisons on planets. If anything, it, it, just, it just acts like a really great, huge resupply transport. Secondly, as per the Tarkin doctrine of rule by fear that spawned it, the Death Star is an amazing threat. When the Death Star is built, effectiveness of Imperial garrisons is increased across the galaxy. However, there is a downside to the Death Star. If it is actually used to destroy a planet, popular support for the Empire goes down substantially across the galaxy. So it's a great threat, but if you use it, your loyal people do not like you so much. The Death Star is also somewhat vulnerable as it can be destroyed by a fighter attack. You actually perform a Death Star run with your fighters if you want to take it out, or you can also destroy it by Death Star sabotage missions. So characters don't only run missions though. They can also be attached to fleets or planetary garrisons and given military ranks. Now, on a fleet, giving one of your characters the rank of Admiral increases the effectiveness of capital ships in combat, a commander helps with fighters, and a general boosts ground units. Uh, generals and commanders can also be placed on planets to boost defensive forces. On top of this, having military leadership on a fleet or a planet also increases the likelihood of uncovering enemy espionage missions before they can cause any damage. Of course, since this is Star Wars, we also have to address the Force. There are Force-sensitive characters in this game. Obviously, Vader and Luke start Force-sensitive. Technically, the Emperor is Force-sensitive too, but he doesn't really enter this equation. Uh, minor characters all have a chance of being spawned as Force-sensitive or not. However, they themselves are not aware that they have sensitivity to the Force. If Vader or Luke ends up on the same ship or planet as a Force-sensitive character... They will let you know, and that character will automatically be given the Force rank of Novice. Other Force ranks consist of Trainee, Jedi Student, Jedi Knight, and Jedi Master. Luke starts off as a Trainee. Now, at a certain point in the game, Luke will just pop up and say, Hey, I met Yoda, I'm going to run off and train with him. And he'll go do that, and provided that doesn't get interrupted by some other events, he will come back at a higher Force level. Other characters can increase their force levels by going on Jedi training missions with either Vader if they're Imperial or Luke if they're Rebel. Uh, this in basically getting higher in force level correspondingly increases their other stats. So just like, you know, the Jedi that we see in the movies, they're basically a little bit better at everything than, than normal people. So <laughs> I actually sort of uh, brought something up there inadvertently. Now, on top of all this movement of fleets and diplomacy and espionage and other events of galactic importance... There's sort of a bunch of B stories going on during the game. For example, I already mentioned how Luke will go train with Yoda. Well, that's one of them. Another one is that Han, throughout the whole game, actually has a price on his head. And uh, he's basically being constantly hounded by bounty hunters. 
Eventually, if you're unlucky, but usually at a certain point during the game, he may be captured and, you know, incarcerated, you know, brought to Java's palace or, or whatever. And when this happens, you basically have no choice. Leia, Chewbacca, and Luke will drop whatever they are doing, even if they're in the middle of a mission or doing something horribly important, they'll drop whatever they're doing to attempt to rescue Han. If Luke happens to encounter Darth Vader and he doesn't end up being captured, he finds out both that Vader is his father and that Leia is his sister. This results in a few things. First, Luke drops out of commission for a good amount of time since this kind of represents him being emotionally distraught at finding out his true heritage. Uh, Leia also becomes force sensitive and can undergo force training. Basically, this is how she finds out that, uh, that she has force powers. Now, if Luke finds out about his heritage, this sets the stage for another event called the final battle. Now, if Luke has a certain force level and both the Emperor and Vader are not on missions, Vader will basically spend his free time trying to capture Luke and bring him before the Emperor. If he does, the final battle occurs. If Luke loses, he remains captured, no big deal. However, if you're lucky and Luke has a high force level, he can win, which results in the capture of Vader and the Emperor in one shot, satisfying two of the three victory conditions for the Rebels. Also, on the sidelines of all this, some of your less savory minor characters can turn coat and betray you. Uh, if... <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on. If the Emperor's on Coruscant, all Imperial characters get a, a leadership bonus. Uh, if Han is traveling with other characters, they travel at double speed since you assume they're on the Millennium Falcon. And, you know, it's a fast ship. A fast ship. <laughs> You've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? But yeah, it's just like there's all these little things that make it the universe so Star Wars-y. It's, it's, it's really cool. So anyways, I mean, that's just... There's so much gameplay here. Like, as you progress through the game, you're going to realize this pretty quick. There's a lot going on. You know, things happen in real time. Uh, and you can change the speed of things uh, with a few different settings. You can set things to paused where nothing happens. You also can't do anything. Uh, you can set it to very slow, slow, medium, and fast. And let me tell you, even at slow, the pace of this game is relentless. You know, not 10 seconds goes by without 3PO piping up about something, you know, production is ready or facilities are idle or characters or fleets got to where they're going or a mission is complete or something else or he just has some random advice. You will very quickly get tired of this. Please consult the advice I have prepared for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the pace of this game is very frantic and especially as the rebels, you always sort of feel like you're behind the curve. The Empire definitely has the advantage in ship construction off the bat as they can build star destroyers. Until the late game, uh, when the Rebels start coming into various forms of Mon Cal cruisers, they really can't counter a Star Destroyer. All you can really do is run away. So all this gameplay is controlled via the Galaxy Overview and a series of both modal and non-modal windows. Now a modal window, this is kind of a, a programming design UI term, a modal window is one which blocks the rest of the UI underneath it until you close it. Uh, this is used in the game for things like uh, production selections and message windows, things like that. Things that you can't, you need to close out of if you want to go do other things. Uh, Non-modal windows can be opened and moved and minimized and, and all that. So opening sector windows, which shows you all the planets in a sector and even planetary detail screens are of this type. You can open them, close them. Uh, you can minimize them off to the side if you want to reference them quickly. And, uh, and, and things like that. Now, <laughs> let me tell you. This system of windowing is definitely 
not very straightforward. At times, it's very challenging to figure out where your characters are, where your fleets are in relation to one another, whether or not you have any free production capacity. One of the biggest challenges in this game is managing the fairly clunky UI. I mean, is there a way they could have made it better? Yeah. Can I think of it off the top of my head? Not really. There's just a lot of stuff happening. Now, I've left out one pretty major part of the game. Uh, what happens when two fleets meet in battle? Well, when this happens, a screen pops up telling you of the battle and showing you the forces arrayed against each other. From here, you have three options. One, you can try to run. Two, you can simulate the battle. And three, you can enter tactical mode and command your fleet, hopefully to victory. So one is pretty self-explanatory. If you are outnumbered, you run away. At the beginning of the game, as the rebels, this is something you do a lot. This may work or it may not. It might result in damage or destruction of your fleet anyways, but you do have the option of trying to get away. Should you choose to fight, you have two options. You could either let the computer roll the dice and tell you how the battle came out, or you can command your own forces in battle. That seems awesome, right? Well, should you choose to command your forces, you'll get dropped into the tactical battle mode. Uh, this shows your fleet and the enemy fleet within a 3D kind of battle space. It's all enclosed in this big cube. You can give each of your ships movement orders, attack orders, have them assume formations, and otherwise control them as you think you know a good admiral should. Now, in my experience, and I also remember Brian, uh, who has an email that's coming up soon, uh, mentioned this to me as well before I replayed, and uh, I fully agree. The tactical thing is something you do one time to say you did it, and then you never do it again. Uh, the tactical UI is very lacking. It's confusing. Ships seemingly don't do what they're told to do. The view window is small. It's difficult to use. I mean, the whole ship combat aspect of the game really does seem like it's something they tacked on right at the end. Like, crap, it's not done, but we got to release. Put it out. I mean, I have vague memories of enjoying it when I was young, but it is immensely frustrating to try and use. I highly recommend you just simulate the space battles. I mean, the graphics aren't even really that good. You know, maybe if it was hard to use, but it looked beautiful. Eh, the 3D is pretty rudimentary. The fighters are just little icons that fly around, little sprites kind of a thing that don't resize or change direction or anything like that. Uh, so, eh, space battles, not really worth your time, I'd probably say. So, <laughs> space battles aside, Rebellion also supports multiplayer via LAN, modem, serial connections, or via the internet. Uh, internet games were facilitated via, was it Zone.com, the Internet Gaming Zone, uh, which was an early online gaming service that handled, uh, I believe it handled X-Wing versus TIE Fighter and X-Wing Alliance as well. Uh, multiplayer games were head-to-head, -head, so it was just two players. Uh, basically, another human would replace the, the opposing computer AI. One side played Rebels, the other played Imperials. Both people needed to have the disc in their drive, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the game in multiplayer basically plays out uh, the same way as a single-player game. The only difference is that either player can actually change the game speed, but both sides of the game will run at the slowest speed selected by the two players. So if one person's on medium and one person's on fast, the game's going to run at medium. Now, I've never played a multiplayer game myself, but I am told that multiplayer, if, if you enjoy this game, is really where the game shines. The computer AI, once you get the hang of it, quickly becomes pretty easy to beat. So, playing against another person really does change things up. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
Ooh, that's probably the most I've talked about gameplay on any particular game in a very long time, and I don't think I actually talked about everything in there, so you can tell how fairly complex this game is. So anyways, now it's on to the tech focus. Let's have some fun here. So to run Rebellion, you needed a machine running Windows 95 and DirectX 5.0. Now, while the game does have some 3D elements to it in the, the tactical mode and all that, an accelerator wasn't required. All you needed in the graphics department was a discrete PCI graphics card. So no, uh, no AGP here. Or sorry, not AGP. This is pre-AGP. Sorry, no ISA cards. <laughs> AGP was uh, was still coming. Uh, you also needed 16 megs of RAM, a quad-speed CD-ROM, and between 53 and 151 megs of hard drive space, depending on the type of install you chose to do. Obviously, for online play, you needed either a modem or some other form of internet connection. And also, since we're into the DirectX, day, DirectX days here, uh, sound and input devices were also getting a little bit easier. I mean, as long as you had a 16-bit Windows-compatible sound card and a Windows-compatible mouse, you were good to go. <laughs> so I'm trying to think. Was there Were there ever really any non-Windows-compatible mice? I mean, by the time Windows 95 rolled around, were we still using serial port mice or were we pretty solidly into that PS2 port uh era and the beginnings of USB. It must have been. I mean, I'm sure if you tried to use an Amiga mouse or something, it probably might not work, but was there a mouse that you could attach to a PC that wouldn't work in Windows? I mean, they're pretty basic devices. I only ever really had like Microsoft mice for a really long time, but anyways, it's all aside. It seems like a mouse is a pretty ubiquitous thing, and I think even in 97, 98, they were pretty ubiquitous, so I always wondered if that was interesting, a Microsoft-compatible mouse. I'm wondering if there wasn't one. Anyways, one thing I haven't covered yet, and it's usually the first thing I talk about in system requirements, is uh, the minimum requirements for the CPU. That's because I find them to be somewhat interesting. There was this small amount of time where this was the case. So to play the game solo, you needed at least a Pentium 90 megahertz. Now, to play a multiplayer game, either via LAN, serial, or modem, a Pentium 100 was recommended. Finally, for an internet game, a Pentium 133 was the recommended option. Now, I sort of find this interesting. I mean, granted, when you're playing a modem or serial game, the computer is doing one more thing than it would otherwise be doing. But I was generally under the impression that networking stuff was all like kind of IRQs and DMA and hardware interrupts and the processor wasn't really involved. Then again, this is Windows 95 we're talking about here. And if I remember right, you used to be able to buy Windows hardware like modems and sound cards that were actually like Windows modems and Windows sound cards and they were designed for Windows and they were much cheaper and I believe that's because they did a lot more work in software and they chewed up CPU cycles just to do anything. For internet play, I also do get why you might want to have a, a beefier CPU. I mean, Windows 95 was the first Windows operating system to have integrated internet connectivity. Uh, before that, you had to mess with things like Trumpet Windsocket to establish TCP IP connections from your machine or go through Novell or some other weirdness. So sure, the internet stuff would definitely add overhead. I mean, it was obviously at that time not very optimized, not very transparent. You know, the, not all computers were connected to things. And, you know, now it's ubiquitous. Now I get a computer that's not connected to the internet and I'm like, what do I do with this thing? It's worthless. You know, not to mention on top of all that internet stuff that Windows was trying to do, the game is likely doing some stuff as well, you know, prepping, sending, receiving, and processing data from its netcode. So I get it. It's just, 
stuff like that only existed for a small amount of time. Eventually, it just didn't matter anymore. And they didn't say, oh, if you want to play online, you need a better machine. It's just, it works. So the game's sounds and music were all, you know, basically standard Star Wars fare from the Lucasfilm sound archives and all that. Um, there were some audio clips from the movies, in addition to quite a bit of music from John Williams' Star Wars score. Uh, we're not talking MIDI here, as as you heard. This this was digital audio. Uh, LucasArts' Peter McConnell was credited as the game's music editor, which I assume means he didn't really do much in the way of original composition or rearrangement of any of the music, as uh, he did in X-Wing and TIE Fighter and that type. I mean, we know Peter McConnell from all the other great LucasArts games we've covered so far. He's truly an amazing game composer. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev story time. Now, interestingly, the the impossible has happened. Uh, Not a ton of information is available about the development of this game. You know, my Google foo usually turns up some random interview or a mention of the game in a tangentially related article or something like that. Well, this time, all I could come up with really was a single GameSpot preview for the game from like 1997. I dislike single sourcing. It usually ends up having inconsistencies and all you guys call me out on what's wrong. But, uh, you know, that's what we've got. That's what we'll have to do this time around. So bear with me. So from what I can gather... The story of Rebellion begins with a group of people working at a uh, game developer called 360 Pacific. Now, if you're into wargaming, you probably know who these guys are. 360 Pacific was founded in the late 80s by a group of wargamers and military history enthusiasts. Uh, They would come out with uh, two incredibly successful series of games, Harpoon and its sequel Harpoon 2, which simulated naval combat, and the V for Victory series, which portrayed a variety of World War II engagements. I may cover these at some point, despite my absolute awfulness at war and kind of grand war strategy type uh, hex-based games. So despite the success of these games, uh, some poorly executed projects and an acquisition by Capcom resulted in the folding of the studio around 1994. This led to a group of now ex-360 Pacific employees uh, led by former product development VP Doug Mog- Machi- M- Muchia, something like that, Mogisa. Anyways, Doug. <laughs> uh, they they were led by him, and they uh, decided to form a new company, which they called Cool Hand Interactive. Now, this was a group of very dedicated war gamers who were experienced in designing large, deep, and complex grand strategy games, and uh, they had an idea. That idea is credited to uh, Scott Witty. In addition to being a huge military history buff, uh, Witty was also a big Star Wars fan. Ever since he first saw A New Hope in 1977, he knew that one day he was going to make a grand strategy game set in the Star Wars universe. Now, since computers of the time in the 70s and you know the early 80s were not really up to that task, nor were his programming skills up to that task, uh, he ended up making a tabletop game, which he played with his friends. So during a brainstorming session, uh, Witty and Mojika were trying to come up with ideas for, you know, what Cool Hand's first game would be. And coincidentally, surprisingly, maybe surprisingly or not, they both almost simultaneously mentioned the idea of this Star Wars grand strategy, you know, Master of Orion type game. To them, it was kind of like this game was meant to be. You know, they had to make it. It was this amazing idea. It was an amazing universe. And it was this game that that Witty had dreamed of making his entire adult life. And they had to do it. Now, 
there was one major issue, though. That issue was, of course, Lucasfilm itself, and more specifically, LucasArts. Now, I've covered quite a few LucasArts games on the podcast, and basically every one of them was both developed and published in-house by LucasArts. Well, technically, X-Wing vs. TIE Fighter was developed by Totally Games, but that studio sort of grew out of LucasArts. It was kind of the sub-studio within LucasArts until it split off. Suffice it to say that Star Wars games were not generally developed by outside studios around 1995, when this was all kind of going down, and they were definitely not developed by outside studios that had no ties to LucasArts whatsoever. Apparently, though, despite outside developers not being the norm, the team did end up getting a meeting with LucasArts product marketing manager Tom Byron. Now, according to Byron, maybe it was the presentation, Maybe it was the enthusiasm, but this idea was too good to pass up. The Star Wars universe was too good a canvas not to do a game like this on. The idea, along with the reputation of the team, convinced Byron to make an exception, and Cool Hand would be the developer of this new Star Wars grand strategy game, which they would call Rebellion, and for some reason which I couldn't surmise, is called Star Wars Supremacy in the UK and Ireland. So all this took place in what appears to be either late 1995 or very early 1996. Now, the aim wasn't just to make a 4X or grand strategy game like a Master of Orion. They didn't want to just make a clone. They wanted to push the genre forward. That's what these guys did. Now, this is where the concept of characters and missions came from. Not only that, but as we've seen, unlike its competitors, Action would take place in real time and battles would be fought in a 3D tactical mode as opposed to being dice rolls and stats. The game would be as deep and complex as any of their previous war games. But to make the game approachable, a series of detailed tutorials would be included to illustrate all aspects of Rebellion's gameplay. They also made sure to infuse it with a huge amount of Star Wars flavor with side missions, events, and individual character stories like we saw. So the game released in February of 1998, after about three years of development. It did all the things we already talked about. Space battles, empire building, espionage, diplomacy, the force, much more. Unfortunately, being so ambitious may have been the game's undoing. I mean, it was roundly criticized as being overly complex, but also skimming over various aspects of gameplay. For example, one complaint was that space battles were muddled in the tactical view, but uh, ground battles were not. Uh, the UI was also criticized as being pretty unintuitive. Well, despite this, as many games do, it did gather a following of fans uh, of both Star Wars and Grand Strategy games. And as time went on, members of the fan community started creating mods for the game. Uh, the most notable one that's still around and I believe is still maintained today is called RebEd or Rebellion Editor. Uh, this editor allows you to create and save what are known as cards, which uh, change the stats of characters and their, you know, images and, uh, you know, things like that. This applies to both characters and units in the game. Uh, this makes for a kind of uh, mission editor, an environment editor that, that calls for almost, uh, gives you almost infinite replayability. Uh, these cards, along with additional ship models, can be packed into total conversions, which modify the game with new characters, ships, and uh, story events. Sadly, possibly due to the poor sales of Rebellion, soon after the game came out, Cool Hand uh, folded. This would be the only game that the company ever released, uh, with no official sequels ever planned. However, 
Uh, Star Wars Empire at War, which came out in 2006, is sort of considered a successor to Rebellion. So uh, it's not as though there weren't other attempts. Now, none of them were very successful either. So I think we're still kind of waiting for the Star Wars Grand Strategy game. Maybe we'll get it with the new movie, but uh, there's definitely no plans for, uh, for anything that I know about. Hi, I'm the Space Quest historian, and I want you to listen to the Upper Memory Block podcast because I say so. So where can we get our hands on Rebellion today? Well, we're in luck. Rebellion is one of those games recently released in, uh, I believe it was the second wave of uh, GOG.com Star Wars games. So you can grab it there for $5.99 US. Despite the fact that it's a Windows 95 game and those traditionally run horribly on, uh, you know, Windows 7, Windows 8 type platforms, uh, this game, whatever it is that uh, the guys at GOG did, runs flawlessly for me. Okay, email time. First email is from Ryan, and Ryan writes, Hey Joe, I haven't written in for a while, so I thought I'd drop you a quick note. Star Wars Rebellion is the best game ever, is what I told all my friends when it came out. When it was launched, a bunch of my friends and I all got it, and they all hated it. It was too hard, and there was too much going on. Being a high school student at the time, my ego told me that I should say that I loved it, and I didn't find it hard at all, and that I was really good at it. That, of course, was a lie. But I really truly did want to like the game. So as I was telling people that it was the best game ever, I was trying to convince myself of the fact. So I kept at it, trying to beat myself into liking this game. I don't think it ever reached the level of best game ever, but I grew to really enjoy it. And I played it off and on for a long time. I love sending my heroes out on missions. It really felt like I was in the driver's seat of the rebellion. I was actually telling Luke Skywalker what to do. I'm looking forward to hearing if it still holds up today. I'm not sure if I'd have the patience anymore to go through that steep learning curve again. Is the payoff worth it? Keep up the great work, Ryan. Well, thanks, Ryan. And well, you know, we'll get to what I think about it in uh, in a little bit. But uh, I'm trying to think if I had any games like that. Like I was always, I, I've said it before, I was always very forgiving of games except Privateer 2. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when people say, oh, I hate that game, I hate that game, I would always kind of say... Well, you know, it really does. There's something to it. There's good parts of it. There's, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, and Rebellion was definitely, was definitely one of those. I remember I had a friend, uh, my my friend Nick, he loved the game way more than I did. And he got way better at it than I ever was. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, I always remember... For me, it was more with books and stuff like uh, Lord of the Rings. For some reason, I I, I always had a lot of trouble getting through Lord of the Rings but I always would try and force myself and trying to read like Dune, Frank Herbert's Dune. Uh, I would always try and get through the books and I knew I, I'm like, I have to like these books. I love sci-fi and I love fantasy and I'm a big geek. So I have to read these books and I have to enjoy them. And I just could never do it. But it just like I kept because I felt like I was supposed to like them then I had to do it and I had to do it and I had to do it. And it's just, oh, I don't think I've still done it. So anyways, good on you for sticking with it. Next, we have a voicemail from Brian. Take it away, sir. Hello, Joe, you sexy beep. I probably can't say that on your show. Um, hi, this is Brian, kind of long-time listener, working on that, first-time caller. Uh, you know me as the Space Game Junkie, and I am giddy that you are doing a show about a game near and dear to my heart, Star Wars Rebellion. Now, when this came out, I played the ever-loving crap out of it. I mean, it was really the only game of its type 
It kind of still is. I mean, it's a character-driven sort of 4X thing where instead, I mean, you do send fleets around, but not really to colonize as much as fortify. But the the big wonderful part of the game was sending characters around to do missions of espionage, uh, to do missions of sabotage, all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, the interface was wacky. The resolution was stuck. The combat was terrible. But all that said, this game is just really kind of unique in terms of space gaming. There really isn't anything like it. For for now, it's kind of the closest thing you will get to Crusader Kings in space. Uh, and this is something that space game strategy nuts like myself have wanted for a long time. So uh, I've probably put, at least back in the day, dozens of hours into this game. I haven't played it much recently because I tried playing it recently and... Oh my god, I ran to that interface. The interface is nuts. But folks, if you have not played Rebellion and you like space games and you like Star Wars, you, you do it. You do your, It's a service to yourself. You do yourself a service to go to GOG and get this game just to see what they were trying to do. Because this game is very ambitious. And if you can read the manual, the manual is pretty good, by the way. Uh, if you can read the manual and get through this game, get through the interface and actually have it click with you, you're really in for a treat. Because there really is nothing like this. Uh, but hopefully there will be more like this. I mean, we have... There's a game coming out called Imperia, which is a very character-driven uh, space strategy game, so hopefully that'll kind of scratch the same itch that Rebellion does. But I, I just can't wait to hear your thoughts on Rebellion, because... Like I said, it's just a really special game to me. So uh, thanks for doing a show on this wonderful game. Thanks for your podcast. And I will talk to you soon and hopefully have you back on my podcast soon. Bye-bye. Well, thank you, Brian. And yes, uh, I do have to highly recommend you guys go check out the Space Game Junkie podcast for both, uh, you know, a lot of coverage of, of current space games and old space games and dev interviews. And, you know, these guys are great. They... They had an interview with, oh, was it David Westman, I think, uh, who worked on uh, X-Wing, TIE Fighter, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. They've interviewed Chris Roberts. I mean, it's just, it's freaking incredible, the uh, the guys that Brian and uh, and his co-hosts get. And uh, I always have a great time when I'm on their show. And Brian, I'm really glad that you mentioned the manual. I totally forgot to kind of bring that up. I think the manual is something you can, when you buy it on GOG, you get the PDF. And I think it's something to the effect of 160 pages or 140 pages. It's it's a big manual. And I do remember this. Like, it was a book. And I remember having it because I did have... I still have the CD of this game, but I don't have the manual anymore. But, uh, and, you know, all those tutorials that I was talking about in the dev story, they said, oh, we're going to ship it. They weren't, you know, online tutorials. They weren't, like, in-game tutorials. They were basically... There was an entire section of the book that had something like 10 or 12 or 14 different little mini tutorials that you should, before you really start playing the game, play through each kind of little, there's like, this is a tutorial on how to manage production. This is a tutorial on how to build and move fleets. So all the things, it was kind of like the proto modern, you know, in-game tutorial, everything where in a modern game, you would open up like the tutorial menu and it would say tutorial one, movement, tutorial two, combat, and whatever, um, 
you know, that would all that was all outlined in in these books. And he would even tell you how to get into the situation. So it's like, you know, how to you know how to do fleet combat while well, they say, well, start a new game, gather up all your fleets, which might even take some time, and then move them to an imperial planet or you know, an enemy planet, and uh, you know, you would practice combat so they would even tell you how to create the situation for the tutorial it wouldn't just be like well wait randomly until this one thing happens so it was actually really well done and i think if you did take the time to go through the tutorials the game did become a bit more approachable so thanks again brian and uh yeah keep on keep on sending stuff in okay so does Rebellion hold up today? Well, I, it depends, I guess. I mean, I really enjoyed this game when I was a kid. At least I, I remember that I did. I think I did. I told myself I did. I don't remember now. I just remember that this was a good game. I kept the CD. I didn't keep the CDs from that many games, frankly. I only kept CDs from games I really liked. I don't think I ever won a match. And I think that record holds even with, with my play sessions for this episode recently. I did not win. This game is hard. The pace of events in real time, even at slow speed, is relentless. I said it before, I'm saying it again. There's a ton of things to keep track of. Production, raw materials, ship production, troop training, character missions. I mean, it's, it's a never-ending flood of events. Now, in a way, this is great. I mean, the game is deep and it's detailed and it allows you to control events in the Star Wars universe like never before and, like Brian said, like never since. There has not been another game like this. I love this game for what it tries to do. The only big issue is the execution. I mean, the UI is just, it's painful to use. Like I said before, it's hard to get an overview of where everything and everyone is. It's hard to send ships and characters places. It's hard to tell when they get where they're going. It's hard to fight. It's just overall hard to do most anything in this game. However, like with many grand strategy games, and I'm talking about, you know, things like Crusader Kings and Europa Universalis here, like very deep, very complex grand strategy games, if you give this game enough time, if you work through the plethora of tutorials in the manual, you will eventually come to love it. As much as the devs tried to make a simple and approachable 4X game here, they just didn't. But once you get the hang of it, there's so much going on in this rich galaxy that they created that you can't help but have fun. You may have torn your hair out trying to get there, but if you do get there, it is really worth it. You're listening. So that's that for another episode. Thanks to everyone for writing and listening and being patient with me doing all my stuff and making the show late and everything like I do every freaking time. Uh, next time, I'm going to head back to the 80s because honestly, like I've, I've been spending a lot of time in the past few episodes in the late 90s. So we're going to go back. We're going to hit the late 80s with Microprose's M1 Tank Platoon. I don't think I've done any kind of tank or armored vehicle type games as of yet. So here we are. I'm excited to give this one the treatment. As always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. Thanks to Trolls for that other <laughs> dumb little uh, bumper that, uh, that he fired off to me one night when he was drunk at a bar. Uh, if you guys are ever drunk at a bar, or even if you're sober and not at a bar, 
You can fire me off a little bumper too saying, hey, this is whoever, and you're listening to the Upper Memory Block podcast. You can send that to podcast at umbcast.com as well. I love I love having different voices on the show, even if it's just in the bumpers. That aside, don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can become my boss over at patreon.com slash umbcast. If you find some value in the show, please consider joining my current patrons. I love you all uh, in donating a buck or two per show to help me with the costs and hit... Uh, hit our next goal, which is, uh, I believe weekly, uh, Twitch streams. I really have, <laughs> I need some motivation cause I'm actually horribly shy and uh, Twitch scares me. So if we hit that goal, I'm going to, I'm going to drag myself out of my dungeon and I'm going to play some games and you guys can watch me and, uh, you know, we'll do a bunch of different things. It might be what I'm covering. It might not, maybe I'll do series. We'll figure it out, but I got to get to 150 per episode. As always, you can check out the show notes on this show and all the previous episodes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We have such a great time over there. All kinds of stuff, all kinds of discussion, all kinds of news going on, opinions flying left and right, this and that. I love it over there. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. I've actually surprisingly been more active on the podcast account lately than on my own, which is... uh, Sort of different from usual, but hey, let's go with it. You can find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast. I promise I'm going to put more videos up there, guys. I, I got to get over myself, basically. Uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. That is that. And we will see you next time for M1 Tank Platoon here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated. <laughs> You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Join!